singing this evening teens you guys can head on back to the back and if you're staying out here Jim can you my mic is not on all right there we go if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 4 Genesis chapter 4 we're going to read the whole chapter and there's a um, a good bit of this chapter uh, to read. We've got 26 verses, but then as we read it, we're going to come back and look at how particularly this applies to our continued study of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, the threefold office of Christ. And in particular, we're looking at the kingly office. And what we see, we've already seen, as, as we saw God has created mankind to have dominion on the earth, The words that are used there in the original language speak of kingly work, of of ruling and reigning. Um, The term uh, that uh, theologians often use is the term that that mankind is is created in God's image to be his vice regents or small s sovereigns uh, over the world. And of course, they're called to do that as God has intended for them to do that, as he has designed for them to do that. And of course, when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we see that instead of exercising dominion over the serpent instead of exercising dominion over temptation um, Adam and Eve fall into sin and what we end up finding is that the effects of that fall continue with their children and that's what we're going to be looking at today as we look at corrupted kings it's interesting that as we see all of the effects of sin we, we saw and looked at the curse we saw that uh, that that Eve is cursed in childbearing and that one of the things that was necessary for this dominion uh, mandate to be worked out was through multiplication. Now, as that multiplication is going to be something that's painful, that becomes a part of it, that as they're called to exercise dominion over the earth, that the earth itself is going to resist at an even greater extent, that there will be thorns and briars, that it will be by the sweat of man's brow, that these things will happen. But yet in the curse, nowhere does God remove that dominion mandate. The dominion mandate is still encumbered upon Adam and Eve. They are still called to exercise that dominion. But we find that because of sin, that at the exercise of that dominion becomes difficult. And so with, if it's a command for Adam and Eve, and they're to do it through multiplying with their family, then that same command, it extends to who? They're children. And we see that here in Genesis chapter 4. Look with me in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So actually what we see, just to, I'm just going to note something. There is cooperation between Cain and Abel in exercising this dominion mandate. Abel takes control over the flocks. Cain takes control over the earth. So that cooperation is going to become important as we see how things progress with Cain and Abel. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, or we could say enraged. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? 
Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must what? Rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground and from the face, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. Sorry, these Hebrew names are always difficult for me. And Mahujael fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah, or Methu, I'm sorry, Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilhah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's seek God's face again in prayer and seek his guidance this evening. Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, that what we read are not just simply stories, but they are history. They are the history of what has happened as we have turned our ways to our own ways, as we've turned away from you. Father, may we learn from what has happened. May we be mournful over how sin creates damage. And Father, may we through this all look to Christ as our only hope from the sin, from sin and its consequences. Lord, work in our midst through your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we are now looking at these corrupted kings. And in particular, we're going to be looking at Cain, Lamech, and then uh, we'll look at just all of humanity as we close things out looking in Genesis chapter 6. Now remember, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, God told them, said, you are going to have to exercise dominion over the earth. And the way in which it was worded, if you remember us talking about it several weeks ago, it's worded in such a way as to describe the fact that creation would not necessarily willingly cede itself to the reign of mankind. And then we see that test come 
when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and particularly tempts Eve. And as a result, we know who ended up winning the day, who dominated who in that encounter. The serpent ends up tempting Adam and Eve, and they run headlong into sin. And so instead of exercising dominion over the serpent, they listen to the serpent, and they themselves become dominated by sin. And so what we see here is God makes the promises of the curse to the ground, the curse to the woman. And in the midst of that, he also gives a great promise of hope that there would be a seed that would come and crush the head of the serpent. That though the serpent may bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And of course, we know that that fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ who crushes the head of the serpent. And in fact, once we get through the scriptures and, and its description of the kingly office it will end in the book of Revelation with this beautiful picture of Christ defeating the dragon. Him destroying that dragon and that is the fulfillment of his crushing the head of the serpent exercising absolute dominion over it. So there was a promise that there would be a seed of the woman that would come and would reverse the curse that God had placed on mankind. And then when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, there is some indication in the original that what Eve says when she says, I've gotten a man with help of the Lord, she maybe is considering that Cain is that promised seed. That perhaps this is the one who's going to come and reverse the curse. And so what ends up happening is we have another setup of a test of dominion. What kind of dominion will Cain have? What kind of king will Cain be? Of course, we know the story. It is not a king that rules righteously, but it is a king who rules with corruption. And so we look at Cain this evening. After the fall, humanity's reign is tested in Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Now, we spent some time talking about this when we looked at the priestly office, uh, but just to suffice it to say, Cain's offering is not regarded by the Lord. Now, in Genesis, we don't really have very clear indication as to why that is the case. We don't see any indication. We just say God did not regard it. But all we have to do is go to Hebrews. And one of the wonderful things about having both the Old and the New Testament is that the New Testament helps us to better understand the Old Testament. And so in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, particularly in Hebrews chapter 11, we see this, what we call the hall of faith. And there's an indication that God had regard to Abel's sacrifice because Abel brought it by faith. So the implication is, what is Cain lacking? Faith, particularly faith in Christ. So if he comes before God and he's not believing in Christ, then who is he believing in? Himself. And so as he brings the fruit of his hands from the ground, brings it to the Lord, he is offering a self-righteous offering. And God rejects it. And Cain is enraged by God's rejection. So much so that his demeanor falls. His demeanor is affected. I think it's just important to note here that when we are called out on our self-righteousness. You know it. That when the Holy Spirit points to something in your life that shows that you're not trusting in God, but you're trusting in yourself, you're looking to your self-righteousness, your initial reaction is to be angry. How dare you say that I'm not good enough? That's the initial reaction when our self-righteousness is confronted by the Lord. And that is exactly what is happening here. God didn't regard Cain's offering because he brought it with self-righteous intent. And so, particularly, something for us to keep in mind, if you notice, the world today is raging against truth. The world today, as the Scripture confronts their self-righteousness, that what they have done today is they've elevated wickedness to be self-righteousness. And then when that is confronted, they're angry. And I only say this to just say we should expect this from the world in which 
we live. So what does God do? Now, it's, it's amazing here. Abel has acted as a proper, sovereign, little s, in God's design. He does what he's commanded to do. He does it by faith, as the writer of Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us. And God has regard to it. But Cain, who brought a self-righteous offering, God doesn't immediately strike him dead. You notice how merciful God is throughout this passage to Cain? Even after Cain delves into absolutely terrible activities out of that self-righteousness that he has, we still see God being merciful. And so there's a, there's a wonderful hope here in, in being able to contrast how God responds to Cain's sin. And it begins with God directly confronting Cain's attitude. God doesn't make any bones about why he, didn't, why he disregarded Cain's offering. He, he confronts him. Now again, um, it says in verse 5 of Genesis 4, For Cain and his offering he had no regard. So, so as a result of God disregarding Cain's offering, he was very angry. He was enraged and his face fell. Now here's the thing. Should Cain have been surprised that God didn't regard his self-righteous offering? No. I mean, I'm sure that Adam and Eve talked to Cain about their sin that had caused all the problems that they saw on the earth at that time. He knew what they had done them. So Cain should not be surprised that God rejected him. And that's the question that God brings before him. He says, listen, why are you angry? In verse 6. Why has your face fallen? This is nothing new. You know that you're to come to me by faith. But you come bringing the fruit of your hands. I'm not going to accept that. Notice what he says in verse 7. He's like, if you do well, you'll be accepted. What is the obedience by which the Lord seeks to approve His people? It's by faith. God commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe. That is the message of the gospel. That is the hope. That is what we do and we will be accepted. If we don't do that, then what obviously is the result? We'll not be accepted. And so God brings that to Cain. Listen. If you do well, you will not you will will you not be accepted. But then notice the warning. He warns Cain that sin is seeking to dominate him. Notice what he says. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It desires to be over you or toward you. Sin wants to rule over you, Cain. Now, again, who is given dominion by God's creation of man in His image? Who's given that right? Mankind is. So notice what God says. His desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Notice the connection with dominion, the kingly work that Cain is commanded to do. You must rule over sin. He must not, be, must not give in to it. He must not be ruled by his desires. He must not be ruled by temptation. He must not be ruled by the, the thoughts and intents of his heart. He must be ruled by God, and that allows him to rule over sin. You realize that every time we face a temptation, there is a conflict of kingdoms. Are we going to act as though we are members of the kingdom of life, vice-regents with Christ, or are we going to let sin have dominion over us? 
This, this study where we're looking at all the, the biblical theology of the prophet, priest, and king, it, yet it has immediate applications to our everyday life. We're called to exercise dominion over temptation and over sin. Well, how does Cain do? Does Cain rule over sin? No. In fact, instead of ruling over sin... Sin ruled over Cain. We see in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What we end up finding is Cain was called to exercise dominion or to dominate sin. But instead of dominating sin, who does he dominate? His brother. Cain sought to dominate Abel by rising up against him and slaying him. We can't know all the machinations going on in Cain's mind, but I I think what you find, perhaps, that seems to make sense is he's going to take out the rival sovereign that he was previously working well with so that he alone would be the only one left for God to work with. He chose to exercise dominion not over sin, but over his brother. And then he sought particularly to exercise that dominion through utilizing violence. He uses violence against a fellow image bearer and a sovereign. Do you see how the corruption of sin has twisted the reign of Cain? So that now he rules not by faith looking to God's provision, but through violence against another person. He reigns through violence. In fact, it's amazing to see how this cuts against the initial dominion mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve? What was part of His design for Adam and Eve to rule the world? Be fruitful and what? Multiply and fill the earth. God determined that it would be best for humanity to exercise this dominion mandate through multiplication, through multiple sovereigns, multiple vice regents ruling over God's earth. But Cain is now cutting even against that. He harms the dominion mandate that God has given him by killing his brother. Well, Cain's sinful choice of violence brings severe consequences. Notice what we say here. In fact, the the imagery is stark with the way that it's worded by Moses in Genesis 4. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Now, did God, like, not know what happened? Obviously. It's the same thing as when He comes into the garden and He asks Adam and Eve, where are you? I mean, God is confronting Adam and Eve, and then now their son, Cain, with their sin. And then notice what he says. This, this is so stark. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from what? The ground. What was it that Cain brought as a sacrifice to God? It was fruit of what? The ground. Now that ground is stained by the blood of his brother. And so what we find is, verse 11, now you are cursed from the ground. Why? Notice what he says. Which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. For Cain, the ground will forever remember being watered by the blood of Abel. That is the intention and the idea here. The 
The ground will forever remember this. It will no longer yield its strength to him. Look at verse 12. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength. Again, dominion terminology being used here. Cain is to subdue the earth. The earth is going to fight hard because it has been hardened by the blood of Abel. Cain is doubly cursed because the, the, the ground had already been cursed in Adam and now in Cain, because of what he's done, it's even worse. For the rest of his life, the ground will not yield to him. It will not back down. And then notice, God doesn't say, so just give up on your dominion mandate. He says, keep it. Cain is still to rule, but now by God's decree, the earth is strengthened in opposition to Cain's rule. He's still a king, but it's going to be really, really hard. Abel's blood that soaked the dirt cursed Cain even more, driving him from the ground that he worked so well. It's amazing here to see that the very thing that Cain sought self-righteousness from that led to his sinful and violent acts is now ruined for him. He's a worker of the ground. And now all the ground remembers about him is that you, you fed us the blood of your brother. But not only that, Cain is cast out from humanity. Look at verse 12. The end, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Remember again that dominion mandate was meant to be done as mankind cooperated in multiplication across the earth. Now, not only is the earth cursed and hardened against Cain, now there's the reality that nobody's going to help him. Cain's all on his own. This dominion mandate is now intensified even more so. He's an outcast. Instead of being able to cooperate with humanity to accomplish the dominion mandate, he'll be a loner, a fugitive, a wanderer. And so Cain himself looks at this and he says, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You've driven me away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And listen, whoever finds me, they will kill me. Cain fears violent reprisal. As humanity grows, and of course we're going to see God has an intention for humanity to grow. We're going to see that, that, that in God's abundant mercy and grace, He provides for Cain's own family to grow. But also He provides Seth, and there's another, another group of people that are going to grow on the earth, and Cain is concerned that he'll be taken out, that there will always be a bounty on his head. And this just illustrates what Jesus tells Peter in the garden. As Peter takes his sword out and cuts off the ear of the, of the servant of the high priest, Jesus says, put your sword back in place. If you take the sword, you'll perish by the sword. Violence begets violence. And so we see severe consequences for sins, ab, for Cain's abdication of his dominion mandate by sin. Yet we see the mercy of God with such an assault on the pinnacle of God's creation. God is going to go on after Noah to say it is an atrocity, it's an abomination to kill another human being because that person is made in God's image. With such an assault on the pinnacle of God's creation, God is merciful and gracious to Cain. Notice what he says in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Now, just think about everything that Cain has just done. 
He's been brash. He's been prideful. He's been self-righteous. He has murdered. And yet God looks at this sinner and He says, you're not going to bear that type of punishment. Not so. It's emphatic. It's stark. It's, it's a statement of absolute sovereignty. The true king, the king of the universe has said, not so. Cain will be spared capital punishment. God will put hedges around Cain with the threat of dire consequences to anyone who touches him, who kills him, who attacks him. Notice what he says in verse 15. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then God puts a mark on Cain. Lest any who found him should attack him. And Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord and settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I mean, think think about the reminder of God's mercy and grace that that mark would be for Cain. That everywhere he would go, he, he, I'm sure, was cognizant of the mark that God had put upon him. A mark of salvation, a mark of mercy, a mark of grace. So we see in the backdrop of such sinful activity and such abdication of the dominion mandate, we see, has God changed being a merciful and gracious God? No. But we also see disappointment. Remember Eve says, I've gotten a man from help of the Lord. This is perhaps the promised seed. What a disappointment. And what we find is that Cain now sets the tone for the rest of his family and beyond as they will seek to exercise dominion. How do they do that? Dominance over others through what? Violence. It was interesting. um, At the conference I was at this week, uh, one of the speakers, he's a pastor in Ypsilanti, Michigan, his name's Jim Newcomer. He was discussing some of the, the violence that we've seen recently in California. And there was a question about why does this type of thing happen? And then when I got back here, I pulled up WPXI online, and, and they were talking about why are we dealing with an outbreak or a rash of violence in the Pittsburgh area? It seems that there's been lots of gun shootouts and gun violence that has happened recently. And the answer is obvious in Scripture. Sin. It's not the gun. It's not the environment the person grew up in. It's not the way that they were treated. It's sin. And mankind's failure to exercise dominance over it, which has now set a pattern of sin that we seek to make ourselves or advance ourselves through acts of violence. And we're reaping the results of that today. But I also think it's important to point out, particularly as we're going to go through and look at the kings of God's own people, of Israel, they were not doves or peaceful people. There was violence throughout all the kings of Israel. And so we're going to see that humanity is left to grow here with a king whose hands are dripping with blood. Cain is is the heir apparent of the dominion of mankind, and his hands are dripping with the blood of his brother. But I think it's important to note that the height of violence done by corrupted kings is found when Christ is condemned by Jewish and Gentile kings. 
fact, it was prophesied in Isaiah 53. Speaking of Christ, he was taken away by oppression and judgment. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, violence done to him. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done what? No violence. We seek to rule with violence. Christ, who has all power, who can speak and worlds can come into existence and He can speak and worlds can go out of existence. Yet, He in His humanity does no violence. Neither was there deceit in His mouth. Again, it's a wonderful hope to look forward to the fact that the King who will fulfill the mandate God has given humanity is none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. But this bloody heritage is seen again in Cain's family with Lamech. Sin left humanity with a violent heir, a blood-stained sovereign who was to multiply so that he could subdue the earth. And the violence persisted in Cain's offspring, Lamech. We see this genealogy of Cain's family. We see, again, all these Hebrew names that, that we struggle to um, pronounce. And then we come to Lamech. And it's interesting, there's mention of Lamech's sons, but then that's it. There's nothing else told from the line of Cain here. Well, what do we know about Lamech? Well, he was very much like his great, great, great grandfather. I think I got all the greats in there that it is. He flaunts God's laws. It's interesting that with Lamech, we find the first example, before we see the violence that's involved in Lamech's life, we see the first example of what other sin? Maybe you missed it because we're so used to hearing it, but it clearly is not God's design. Lamech took to himself how many wives? two wives. He's already flaunting the design that God has for humanity. Listen, if there, there are many people who will, who will argue that the Bible supports polygamous um, relationships. If this is the first guy that is involved in a polygamous relationship in, in the Bible, I don't think he's the guy you want to be your spokesperson for a doctrine, all right? So it is obvious here that what is happening is a result of sinful actions corrupting Lamech. And listen, I know that there are heroes of the faith, men that God had used in amazing ways that go into the same error. We see it with David. We see it with his son, Solomon. But again, the Bible, I think that type of thing speaks to the veracity of Scripture because those whom God uses are nothing but fallen, sinful human beings. And the Bible is clear about that. It doesn't hide their sins. So Lamech is flaunting God's rules, flaunting God's laws, having two wives. But not only that, he boasts of his violent conquests. Notice what he says. He says to his wives, so I'm sure that, uh, that wives love to hear their husbands brag about how they killed people. <laughs> and that's exactly what Lamech is doing here. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. So what we actually see here is a hymn that Lamech has written about himself. He's telling the story of Lamech. This was a commonplace activity in the ancient world. They would remember 
what they had done, they would pass on stories by using music and hymns and poetry. And that's what we have here. Lamech is giving poetry. He's giving a, an, an arts slant to his violence. What does he want his wives to listen to? I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. It is interesting here that Lamech shows no remorse for his activities. There are some that would argue that perhaps he was uh, responding in defense. And there is a possibility, particularly the way that he has worded it here, that these people have wounded him, they've strike, they have stricken him. However, I think it's important that we recognize the source. Who is the one giving us the story about what happened here with Lamech? Lamech is. And anybody who does any type of investigation into things knows that there are many different sides to stories. But particularly what what I find notable here is that Lamech boasts about killing these people. He actually goes a little bit further than Cain does. Cain, at least from what we see in Scripture, he shows remorse over the consequences of his sin, but at least he shows remorse. What does Lamech do? Look at verse 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's mine, what I have done, is seventy-sevenfold. He's brash and audacious and, and boastful in what he's done. He's proud of his violence. He's proud of killing. And so what we end up finding is violence with Lamech, even with with Seth's line, becomes a way of dominance and commonplace among humanity. And boy, we see that today, don't we? Violence seems to be the way that people deal with things. You know, it's funny, that quote, I mentioned that violence begets violence, which is, which is a principle taken from Matthew, uh, um, wherever it was, Matthew 26. You know who first said it that way? Well, actually, it was said a while, it was said years before he said it, but it was made famous by a particular person. Anyone know who that was? Martin Luther King, Jr., what was he known for as, as the, the focus of the way in which he sought to bring about change through nonviolence? Now, I'm not trying to put up Dr. King as an example of, of what we should look to for these type of things, but I just would like to point out that today he's like the most, everyone looks to him and looks to nonviolence as the way to get things done. But do we find our world becoming less violent? No. And again, it shows that the only way that transformation about the way in which we exercise dominion in the earth, the only way that that's going to change from violence to nonviolence is to find and to look in faith to Christ who did know violence. If we want to see a society that is free of violence, it comes through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being transformed by God's grace. That is the only way. Not by trying to put a facade of nonviolence on our world. Well, as I mentioned, humanity heads footlong, heads headfirst, headlong, footlong, footloose, and fancy free. No, I'm sorry. Humanity heads into (laughs) depravity in great ways. And in fact, this is going to take us over to um, Genesis chapter 6. Look with me in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. 
When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, not going to spend the time you're like, what is going on there? There's a lot of strange ideas that come out of that particular passage. We're here to talk about the dominion mandate, so maybe for some other time <laughs> we'll talk about the Nephilim. But look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jump down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. By the time of Noah's birth, humanity has altogether become corrupted. Listen, this is not just affecting some of humanity. Everyone is corrupted. Everyone only, always thinks wickedness. And when you have a society that casts off any sense of right and wrong, what's going to be the fruit of that society? Violence. Because we're called to be Kings, we're called to exercise dominion. But the only way at this point that we know how to exercise dominion is through violence. The, the, the call of God to Adam and Eve is now so far removed from where humanity is that this is all they know. It's all they know how to do is to kill. And it goes all the way back to Cain who... For him, the only way he knew how to deal with a rival sovereign was to kill him. And so what does God say? Look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 6. So the Lord said, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And not just man, but everything I've placed under their dominion. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry. I regret that I have made them. God regrets his creation of mankind and he determines to wipe them from the planet. It's interesting to note, and this is something that we'll see throughout Scripture, kings are responsible for those that they rule over. And what kings do will affect their subjects. So what has happened to the rule, the area that we've been called to bring into subjection? It suffers because of our failed rule. This is why it is never true that sin only ever affects you. Oftentimes we can justify in our minds, we can justify in the way that we're thinking, oh, this doesn't hurt anybody else but me. Nobody else is going to see what I'm doing on the internet or nobody else is going to care about what I'm thinking in my mind. Listen, your, your, it is baked into creation that your role as a sovereign, the way that you live will affect your subjects, this earth. And if all you have to do is look to Romans chapter 8 where what is creation doing? At, under man's rule. It is groaning. It's waiting for the day when Jesus will come again. Look at verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with what? Violence again. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But look at verse 8. Noah found favor 
in the eyes of the Lord. It is amazing to me here as we look back at Cain and see everything that he has done, that God is still merciful to Cain. And then we fast forward and we look at humanity, and it is altogether corrupted. Yet, God is gracious to one. And what we're going to look at next week is dominion reset. God's going to wipe the slate clean, but he's going to preserve Noah and his family. And he's going to reinstitute the dominion mandate. And we'll see how Noah, a man that we look to as a hero of the faith, is Noah the promised Savior? And what we'll find is, no, he's not. All of this, and this is the thing, is we're going we're to walk through a lot of disappointing stories. Over and over again, you're going to see humanity and the role that they've been given failing. What's that meant to do? Call us to trust in King Jesus, the one who perfectly rules and exercises dominion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for um, the stark reality of how sin corrupts. Lord, we look at how Cain led humanity after his father and mother led humanity as a bloodstained sovereign and that that continued to be the pattern. Father, we thank you that even though your son suffered violence at the hands of sinful rulers, he himself committed no violence so that we can find in him a perfect king not one who seeks to establish his rule through force, but one who seeks to establish his rule because you have given him that authority. Father, may we seek to be warned by these passages to not let sin rule over us, but to rule over it. Father, take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives. May we be encouraged and strengthened and warned by it tonight. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.